Smashed into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin. Lovely finish. Ajax delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity. Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Play it again. And Goldberg. Messi again. This time, maybe Messi's done it. There were fireworks at the Parc des Princes on Sunday, just none of them from Paris Saint-Germain as they drew a blanc against Lyon. Marseille should consider moving house as there's clearly no home comforts for them as they draw with Montpellier. While Lance's focus remains sharp after successfully running the Galette Saucisse gauntlet in Rennes. There's far more puns and also our Deja Who quiz and quite probably some wild and wholly inaccurate predictions all coming up on this week's Le Bourgeois, the official League Arm podcast in English. My name's Ian Holyman, and I'm delighted to have with me Luke Entwistle from the sunny Côte d'Azur and Jonathan Johnson from uh, today, the sunny French capital of Paris. Starting in the capital this week, as I mentioned, fireworks at the Parc des Princes post-match as uh, an ultra group celebrated their 15th anniversary. But the players on the pitch, well, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of, well, I'm not quite sure how you could describe it. Football probably is probably the best word from Christophe Galtier's side. Andy Scott was on comms. Luna Mendes, back to Mbappe again. He looks to play the one-two with Messi. It's brilliantly done. And Mbappe's effort is off target, but that was electrified football from the two World Cup winners. Mbappe, France's 2018 World Cup hero, playing the 1-2 with Messi, looking for his 32nd goal of the season in all competitions. Back with Shirky again, holds off Verratti. Feeds it through towards Barcola. It's a brilliant pass from Ryan Cherkey. And it deserved a lot better than that from Barcola. But Lacazette stealing in. Got to that ball in front of Donnarumma. And uh, it's a penalty kick to Leo here. Alexandre Lacazette looking for his 151st Leon goal. Lacazette's penalty off the woodwork. And the follow-up is over the crossbar. Well... It's a let-off for the home team, a big let-off from Gianluigi Donnarumma. And, uh, well, you do not expect Alexandre Lacazette to squander such an opportunity. Thiago Mendes forward. And the ball across the face of goal, turned into the net by Barcola. And there is the goal that Lyon have been threatening. It's the substitute Bradley Barcola who scores it. And 10 minutes into the second half here at the Parc des Princes, the Ligue 1 leaders are behind. Well, a little spell of pressure leading to the goal. And it was Kumbedi who took the ball away from Ryan Cherky when he was about to shoot just a few moments earlier. Who provided the assist for Bradley Barcola. Jonathan. Well, JJ, as, uh, as I've called you for years now, so I'm going to just have to stick with that, I'm afraid. What happened last night? I mean, PSG just didn't play, and they were outclassed, really, by uh, by Leon, weren't they? I mean, 1-0, I 
one nil could have been could have been more. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you bear in mind that Alexandre Lacazette misses a penalty in the first half, comes back off the post. You know, could quite easily have been two nil. I mean, uh, you know, what happened? I, I guess it's more a question of what didn't happen because after the first fifteen to twenty minutes, PSG just really you know didn't do anything. Uh, you know, they they started fairly brightly. To be fair, I mean, it was it was a very strange experience because for the first time in quite a while. There was a bit of a buzz around the stadium. There was an atmosphere, like you said. Uh, you know, you had the the, the Casos group uh, celebrating, uh, you know, their birthday. So there was, uh, you know, a bit of an atmosphere building before the game. You know, big Tifo unveiled. Uh, you know, and the players seemed to to respond to that to feed off the energy a little bit. And then after about twenty minutes, it just stopped. Uh, you know, there's nothing more. Uh, you know, very little effort put in by, you know, quite a few of the players. And, you know, basically it was just a question of when Leon would score. Obviously, uh, you know, it took them the best part of an hour until Barcola, uh, you know, got the opener and, and, you know, consequently the only goal of the game. But, uh, you know, it really was, uh, you know, just again, this this same kind of feeling that you got going to the Ren match just before uh, the international break. You know, it really does feel like, you know, once again, PSG season has taken uh you know a, a a terminal dent with the with the champions league exit uh, and the players just have nothing left to play for you know you had a few boos and whistles towards Lionel Messi before the game but then in the second half when i think he attempted a run uh, at the Lyon defense didn't get very far then it started to get really sort of uh you know aggressive uh, you know from the from the crowd and there was a massive sense of frustration by the end of the game and it is frustrating because you know that the players can play, but to just see them sort of loafing around on the pitch like that, uh, you know, it is it is majorly uh, concerning, especially when they're, you know, top of the league, still relatively comfortably at this moment in time, uh, yet, uh, you know, stringing together consecutive defeats at home in Ligue 1. Yeah, Paris Saint-Germain still uh, six points clear. Let's let's not get too carried away. It's a, it's a relatively comfortable margin, although uh, as we'll look ahead to next week, Lance could cut that to three before PSG play play next week. But there was a moment which could have changed the game. Let's let's be fair. Nuno Mendes puts in a cross. Dejan Lovren clearly handles the ball. It wasn't a penalty. I mean, why the F not? But I mean, that was... A, if that wasn't a stitched-on penalty, I, I don't know what is. In, in, in these days... I read in Lekeep this morning, former referee Said in Jimmy says his arm wasn't totally away from his body and uh, it was a natural movement. Uh, well, in which case, I mean, every time the ball strikes somebody when they've got their arms behind their back should be given as a penalty because that's a very unnatural movement, surely. I mean, Luke, can you, can you explain that? It wasn't, even, it wasn't even referred to the referee by VAR, apparently. No, I mean, it, it couldn't be, you know, if it was any more detached from his body, the arm would not be attached to the body at all. I mean, it was it was fully <laughs> out. It was, it feels like a natural position, but I don't know. I don't know the rules because it changes seemingly week in, week out. Um, it's sometimes to do with if it's taking a little deflection off anywhere, the proximity to the player. There's so many different factors, but to be honest, there's quite a lot of room between the player, between the shot. Um, the cross, sorry, and Dejan Lovren. So it feels as though that one should have been given as a penalty. There's so many different ones. I mean, I, I'm 
I'm not a big fan of this handball rule where basically now if it touches the hand anywhere from any distance, it feels as though it's just given or if at least it's referred. And once it's referred, that's it. But um, yeah, I think that that one was, I think PSG can for once feel kind of rightly agreed that they didn't get that decision because yeah, it, it seemed like a, it did seem like a problem, but not many PSG players appealed for it. That could have factored into the, the, the decision not being referred and, and not ultimately being given. But kind of back on, on PSG, I mean, it does feel as though we've reached that point of the season for PSG again, where it's, I mean, we're in April now, but it always seems to kind of fall apart in March. And it, it once again just fell apart in March. And I mean, there's players there, and I think you can just start questioning motivation of players. You know, the players who will stay, but maybe think that they'll outlast Christophe Galtier and they think, okay, we'll probably win the league with him, but what are we creating here? You know, is this a project, you know, if, if he's going to be going in the summer, why am I kind of adhering to his philosophy, which is quite unique really, and, and which potentially his successor will not share. And then there's also too many players in that team, like Messi, for example, who you have question marks whether or not they'll be there next season. So if they're on the way in the summer anyway, there's there's an understandable lack of motivation there. And then couple that with the fact that who knows if Galtier is there next season. I, I think you can really question the motivation. It's just about getting over the line, which they always seem to do, but but will they do it this year? Well, that's, that's a pretty outrageous, I mean, situation to be in, isn't it? When you've got, I mean, last week, Lekeep published the salaries of the PSG players. Kylian Mbappe, pretty much what Luke Entwistle earns in, in, in a month. It, it's a similar level, 6 million euros a, a month before tax. I don't know why JJ is laughing because he's probably on more than that. Um, I know I know, I am. 6 million euros, okay? The, the, the rest of them, it was 3 million a month. It was a million a month. It was nearly a million a month. And they're lacking motivation. Now, I know the money... It's not just motivation, but if you're getting paid that much, it's not about motivation. You have a responsibility, don't you? You have a responsibility to your club. You have a responsibility to the fans. I mean, interestingly, Kylian Mbappe talked to the, that group of fans who were having their their anniversary, These this group of ultras, which PSG have only recently really allowed back into to the Parc des Princes after some some uh, some tragic and, and pretty disgraceful, disgraceful incidents. Um, and he said, yes, we know we haven't done enough. Yes, we're going to try and do everything. And yet they come out with a performance like that. I mean, JJ, wait, you watch a lot of PSG. Is this a Galtier problem? Is this a squad problem? Is this a club philosophy problem? Because, I mean, this is, if we're talking about a lack of motivation of world class. We're talking about lack of motivation of a seven-time Ballon d'Or winner. What? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's very, uh, you know, little argument with the fact that this certainly stems from the top of the club now. It's not just a question of it being a couple of players or, you know, managers, because this has happened on a number of different, uh, you know, managers' watches now. It's not just Galtier, it was Pochettino before him, you know, took off air better than most before that, uh, you know, but still ultimately succumbed to that same sort of, uh, you know, slovenly attitude. Um, you know, Emery experienced it as well. Uh, you know, it's 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 funny actually. Uh, you know that Laurent Blanc would come back to Parc des Princes and get a win. Uh, you know, the the most successful uh, you know PSG manager in terms of uh, in terms of titles, comebacks and picks up three points for a far from vintage uh, you know Lyon side as well. Uh, you know, and I think that in itself, and you know the the penalty incident we were talking about earlier, there is a lack of 
investment, obviously not financially, but sort of emotionally from these players, uh, you know, where they're, you know, they're not fighting for results that, it, you know, since the beginning of the, the year, the calendar year, 2023, so after the, the 2022 World Cup, there has been a massive, I'm not going to say a downing of tools, but something close to that, because, you know, you look at the, uh, you know, the stats, I think it's something crazy at the moment, you know, PSG have picked up, what is it, like eight losses? Since the beginning of the the year, that is an absolutely wild, uh, you know, statistic that puts Galtier, you know, at one of the sort of lowest statistical returns, uh, you know, in the QSI era. And, you know, it's, I mean... Actually, JJ, just to, cut, just to cut in there a sec, it's their highest tally of defeat after 18 games in a calendar year since 2001. Right, I mean, that... We're not even talking about the QSI era here. We're talking about we're going back to Canal Plus era. We're going we're going back to Nicola Nicola and Elke and and, and Sylvain Distan, a promising players era. I mean, this is this is sense this is sensational. Just just not in a good way. Yeah, I mean, this is uh you know even before my days as a season ticket holder. It's uh, yeah you know it is massively uh, you know worrying if you're a, if you're a PSG fan uh, you know to to see. Uh, you know, this this lack of, you know, commitment, really. Uh, it's, uh, you know, even some of the players sort of, you know, coming through the, the the academy, they don't really look like they believe that, you know, they're going to make that much of an impact, uh, you know, for the team on the pitch. You know, you get Warren Zaire Emery, you know, being thrown on sort of 15 minutes from the end. Uh, you know, Garvey got a, an opportunity as well. But, you know, some very... Uh, yeah, some very worrying times for, for, for the Parc des Princes crowd. And you can certainly sense that, you know, as soon as Lyon scored, you know, the massive deflation that goes, you know, through the stadium uh, and this sort of feeling of, uh, you know, deja vu. Uh, you know, it's kind of like Groundhog Day for PSG almost every season. Once you go out of the Champions League, uh, you know, it's a question of just, you know, sort of dragging yourself to the finish line and, and going again the season after. But each time it happens, it just gets less and less convincing. And it's, uh, you know, it really now does feel like massive wholesale changes are needed at the club, not just in terms of the players on the pitch and, and who's shaping the sporting project, but in terms of the attitudes, because it's happened so many times now that it's, you know, it really is, uh, you know, unacceptable. The quote that was picked out in Le Keep from Christophe Galtier post-match was, Nous brûlons nos jokers which translated literally into English means we're burning our jokers. Now, this doesn't mean that there's going to be a multi-million pound footballer bonfire at the, the Conte Lodge uh, this, this week. It basically means we're using all our get-out-of-jail-free cards. Now, the question is, for me, the players clearly have, have been had a huge part in that. But what do we do about Galti? Because you look at Bayern Munich, they've just sacked Julian Nagelsmann. You look at Chelsea, they've just sacked Graham Potter uh, for, for a run, which okay is probably worse than PSG's. Uh, ad admittedly, PSG are still top of the league. Bayern weren't even top of the league when they got rid of Nagelsmann. But now, Galt for me, Galtier and Campos proved at Lille that given the right environment, given the right players, but mostly the environment, they can work absolute miracles. Are we... <laughs> But are PSG going to do that? Are they going to sacrifice the playing squad, which is much more difficult to do, for the sake of keeping, for my money, the best France French coach that we've had 
for I don't know how long. Probably that probably that certainly the last ten years for sure, and if not a bit longer. Or do they take the easy option and get rid of Galtier? And then the question becomes who next? We we talked about this before. We've had Ancelotti, we've had Combuare, we've had uh, Tuchel, we've had Emery, we've had Blanc. Honestly, it, it, who next? Where, where where can you possibly go after after Galtier? And what would that mean for Luis Campos again, who is a proven who has proven himself both at Monaco and at Lille to be an absolutely uh, fabulous squad squad builder? What do you think, Luke? Yeah, I mean, we're trying to kind of pinpoint this demise that happens, you know, frequently, and, and it's clearly a, a hierarchical problem at the club. But I do think that Galtier has his own role to play. I mean, you don't need to go too far back to look at what Galtier did with Nice last season. I mean, it was an electric start, second by the midway point, and then they fell way off and were really lucky to get Europa Conference League, ultimately with an Andy Delors hat trick in the final game of the season to win a game. So I think with Galtier, I, I do think we can maybe start questioning now whether. Potentially, I mean, he could be past the peak of his powers, potentially, or whether it is just the sense that he really needs all of those environmental factors like he had at Lille to be completely aligned in order for him to to get the most out of them. But it does seem that Galtier probably won't be there next season, and I'm not sure where he goes from there because it feels as though at PSG, the only person who was ever going to bring him in was going to be Luis Campos, and luckily Campos was was in the building and he brought him in, but it just feels as though he is a great tactician, a very, very pragmatic manager, but given a dressing room full of egos and a dressing room full of talented stars that potentially don't really suit what he wants to do, I think he feels a bit lost. I don't know how adaptable he is in uh, adapting to these different egos, adapting to the play style of different players, but rather, you know, bringing in players that are completely aligned with what he wants to do. There are players in that team that he just can't move out because of who they are in, in the dressing room. So I, I think that's that's the problem that that they have. And I, I think the Galtier is part of that problem. I think he's exacerbated this demise this year, which I think feels more extreme than it has been in previous years. Um, so I, I don't know what you do with that as, as PSG. You probably hit the reset button again, but but to what effect? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think as well, something that I felt contributed majorly towards Galtier's rise was the fact that he was working under quite uh, challenging conditions at Saint-Étienne and Lille. I mean, at Saint-Étienne, certainly in financial terms, Lille, I mean, he came in at a very desperate moment uh, for the club where they were looking at potential relegation after Marcelo Bielsa had basically ripped up the entire squad. Uh, and tried to rebuild it with players that would fit into into his system. You know, Galtier came in, made sense of that, and ultimately salvaged, uh, you know, not just Lille's, um, you know, top flight status, but ultimately then led them to a very improbable title success at PSG's expense. But, you know, PSG are, you know, they're unlike any other French club. You know, they're on a, a planet of their own. And, you know, what works at certain other clubs in certain other environments doesn't, uh, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, translate into, you know, what works in uh, in Paris. And I think, uh, you know, PSG for a long time now have needed authority, not just from the manager, but also, you know, from those sort of handling the the, the squad, you know, and I think we saw, uh, you know, a couple of months ago with, uh, with Campos, certainly in, uh, you know, in Monaco, uh, and then, you know, at home in that match against Lille, when he came down to the to the side of the pitch, there is a recognition that, 
know, basically, a, a, you know, this PSG squad is essentially sort of out of control of the manager. I think he was there trying to sort of back Galtier up. But, you know, it comes back to this. And maybe that was the moment that everything broke and, you know, truly fell apart. Because let's not forget, you know, we're questioning Galtier now, but PSG were unbeaten going into the World Cup break. I mean, it seems like, you know, it was years ago. Like like at Nice almost. Yeah. <laughs> Like at Nice, where he had a similar record, and then it just all fell apart. And it's 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 interesting. It's happened in consecutive seasons that there's this been this massive. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how you really term what what has happened in the last couple of years on, with his two very very different teams. It must be said, but there there has been just a complete drop off. Just as soon as the midway point is reached, just a drop off. Really, it's it's huge. Really, I mean, I don't know if that is like a reflection, maybe of Galtier, you know, getting comfortable, sort of feeling like you know the the job has been half done, and then uh, you know, almost needing the pressure that he had at Lille, uh, you know, in order to 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 make sure that the job gets seen through for the entirety of the season. Perhaps that element of it is on Galtier, but equally, uh, you know, this is something that we've seen from PSG before. Galtier was, you know, even part of their plan, so it's. I mean, as much as I take Luke's point, uh, you know, that there is uh, an, an element of this that Galtier has to be held accountable for. There is also a massive part of this that is the club's responsibility because it's happening over and over again under different managers. Question. Yes or no? PSG win the title? JJ? Yes, but I think it might be closer than six points. They've got a home game coming up against Lons. On the 18th, on the fifteenth of April as well. Although apart from that, they've got a, a pretty easy running. Luke, yeah, I don't think there's enough pressure being exerted. I, I think we'll get onto that, but I, I think that's the issue there. I mean, obviously their next game is they're coming down to see me and Nice. Um, Degar still unbeaten uh, as Nice manager, which is very impressive. But uh, they've kind of taken their foot off the pedal a bit, and then after that, the running is really simple. So I'm going to go for. Yeah, they'll win it quite comfortably, maybe by a bigger margin than than they currently have. I did, uh, I I did predict wholly and wildly inaccurate predictions from the panel. So there, you've got them. Now you can uh, you can store those up and throw them out uh, to us on social media when we're we're very 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 wrong. But I have to say, I think PSG will win too, and the fixture list is very very handy. You probably expect them to step up again as they did as they did against Marseille. Actually, when they play Lens at home in a couple of weeks' time probably get the win and then uh, all of this chat uh, will be put on hold at least until the summer when we can start talking about Messi's future and Mbappe's future and uh, Christophe Galtier's future all over again. All that to look forward to on Le Bourgeois the official league and podcast uh, please subscribe, follow and recommend us on the all the official podcast platform Let's move on then, some uh, fantastic I have to say, I commentated this game this was a great game a great performance from Lille. Very more reminiscent of the uh, Lille of Christophe Galtier. Definitely not reminiscent of the Lille uh, under Jocelyn Gorvenek. Paolo Fonseca's Lille absolutely tore into Lorient. Uh, in the first half hour, I loved Adam Unas. I loved Remy Cabela. Welcome back, Remy. This is a, a real renaissance for Cabela. But they only got the one goal. Lorient got a very, very streaky Ibrahima Kone goal, I have to say, uh, to, to equalise. And then step forward, Eden Zegreva. It was Eden Azar before, now it's Eden Zegreva. The Kosovo international comes off the bench, scores two, the first one. And absolute, how, he, how he's threaded it through and in off the far post, I do not know. Uh, lovely bit of play from him. 
Angel Gomez as well with a, a nice assist for the first goal for, for Cabela. Lille into the top five. That's because Ren uh, slipped up and uh, Lance, ironically, uh, for many Lille fans, they'll have been cheering on Lance on Saturday evening at Roseanne Park. More of that later. But thanks to uh, what Lance did at Roseanne Park, Lille into the top five. Um, I personally, if they play like that, I want them in Europe next season. I mean, they were they they, they were excellent, and it, it just does seem to me that it's a very very quick turnaround from uh, just a few couple of months ago where Paolo Fonseca, and I've mentioned this before, was offering to resign uh, because the fans weren't happy with him. Uh, they certainly were yesterday. It was a really good performance down at the Stade Louis II. Luke Monaco Strasbourg Monaco four. Strasbourg 3. But were you expecting that when it was Monaco 1, Strasbourg 2? No, I mean, we were having a bit of a chat in the press box pre-match and um, my prediction was a professional and clean display. 2-0 is what I kind of had. <laughs> I was kind of boasting, I was kind of nudging people next to me when it was 1-0 and about half an hour in. And then obviously it, it all completely collapsed and it, it was quite quick, really. I mean, the Vanderson goal, Vanderson's kind of... Yeah, I'm not sure if we, we speak about him enough on, on this podcast, but a great player. You know, he really adapted very, very quickly. He had a slight downturn earlier in the season, but he's really picked up again. Very versatile, can be in midfield, can be in the defence. Really interesting player. I think I think he'll, he'll go very far, but he scores his goal. And then Monaco, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the environment that is the Stadler Uh There's just a complete drop-off in intensity and aggressivity, and it just completely tails off. And, you know, the stadium isn't rocking, let's put it that way. And uh, that probably doesn't help matters. And Strasbourg straight back into it, two goals. Um, and then suddenly you, you've got an uphill task. And, and the thing is with this Monaco side is that they're they're very young and they don't have necessarily the mindset always to, um, to kind of turn these situations around, especially when they're so expected to win. And, and you, you've got... Um, you know, a struggle both side really in need of of a, of a three points because they're really down there struggling. So they did manage to turn it around. Um, the Philippe Clermont substitution, Eden Diop on for Aguilar is, is an inspired one. Ultimately, he's the, the brother of Sofian who left Monaco to go to local rivals Nice in the summer. Um, really interesting player. And he's just broken through recently, but has been used as a, as a, as a defender rather than a midfielder. But yeah, turned around ultimately goal for Fafana against his former club. Uh, the red card made it a little bit nervy towards the end. But yeah, it's great to see a glut of goals that the sadly we did. It doesn't happen too often for me. So um, I hope that's not it for the season. And I'm I'm going to be suffering with nil-nil, one-nil wins and, until the end of the season. But yeah, Monaco now on 57 points, still in fourth, but just three points behind Marseille. More of them in a little while. Uh, loss up to second, also on 60, but they're ahead of Marseille on goal difference. PSG, six points clear at the top still. Lille, as we mentioned, up into fifth, ahead of Rennes. Remember, it's the uh, top five that's guaranteed European football next season. Nantes, they're hoping to get into Europe next season via the Coupe de France. They've got a Coupe uh, semi-final. On Wednesday against Lyon, uh, which is now looking like a very, very tricky game uh, indeed. Luckily, I'll be at the Stade de la Bourgeois, hopefully not too cold um, and not partaking of the, the very plentiful wine in the press box uh, pre-match, possibly post-match, but uh, certainly not pre-match. They were up against Reims this weekend. Reims, who'd uh, seen their 19-game unbeaten streak ended by Marseille. 
just before the international break, but will still getting back to winning ways and not uh, soundly beaten, it has to be said. Alexis flips with a, a couple of goals. Following Balogun might have had a couple of goals as well, but uh, smacked the, the crossbar on a couple of occasions. Marshall Munetzi. Marshall Munetzi is having a great season with uh, with uh, Raz. Really getting forward now. Not so much uh, the defensive midfielder that he has been in, in, in previous in previous regimes. Will still encouraging the uh, Zimbabwe international to get forward. He's playing Really, really well. Uh, a 3-0 win for uh, for, for, for Reims. Uh, Reims, six points off fifth place, making a late charge for it. Marseille are looking to hang on to a place in the top three. They played on Friday night, setting the tone for the weekend, you could say. It wasn't particularly the tone that they wanted to set as they took on Montpellier. And uh, as usual... Um, cauldron-esque Stad Velodrome. Matt Spiro saw this one. Nice skills from Wabi Kazri, who tries to get away from Genduzi. He's done well. And now Eli Wai can find Norda. Oh, a big chance for Montpellier. Oh, no, Norda has slotted it, but it won't count. The flag has been raised. The goal stands. Arno Norden has given Montpellier the lead here in Marseille. Eliway was not offside. Great run from Kazri. Deep in his own half. Wabi Kazri driving away from Genduzi. Picked out Wai his first time ball. Perfect into the stride of uh, Nordin. And a cool finish from the Montpellier number seven. Genduzi. Tavares, Tavares with the cross, Sanchez! It's a desperate last gasp challenge from Mamadou Sako that keeps Marseille at bay. Some appeals for a penalty, more from the supporters, I think, than from the players. Now Malinovsky, and uh, it flies over the top of the crossbar. Now, is this a penalty? On this replay, it looks like Sanchez's shot has just gone straight into Sacco's arm, which is away from his body. It's going to be a penalty to Marseille. Genduzi against Leconte. And Matteo Genduzi tucks it away into the bottom corner. Marseille draw level shortly before half-time. It's a big goal, it's an important goal. Because, frankly, Marseille didn't uh, look particularly dangerous until this moment. Winless in five. At home now, Marseille. Igor Tudor saying that it's because teams come here, the atmosphere is fantastic, and it works both ways. Marseille get motivated, but so do so do the opposing team. Maybe we can forgive them a little bit for drawing with Montpellier, who've been in sensational form under under Desacarian since his return and beaten in seven now, Montpellier. But I mean, JJ, do you have any? Do you have any sympathy for that argument? I mean, to be fair, away from home, they've got four more points than anyone else in the league. I mean, that's as a sensational away record, and it's it's not the first time that Marseille have had a better away record than than home record in a season since the Velodrome got that wonderful roof put on, and the atmosphere just gets captured in it, and it just rings around it and absolutely destroys your eardrums at times, but. I mean, do you have any sympathy with, with, with Tudor? 
I mean, I think he, I think he has a point. I mean, I think the thing to bear in mind <clears throat> about uh, you know the Marseille fan base is that expectations are extremely high. You know, especially when there is now this massive sense of frustration. I think amongst the OM fans that PSG have been so underwhelming, yet they're still you know relatively comfortable at the top of league 1 at this moment in time so there's this frustration that you know om don't necessarily match their impressive performances away from home when they're at home uh you know i mean i, I think you're you're totally right it's difficult to sort of feel too annoyed about drawing against a montpellier side that are really on a massive uptick in form at the moment but when you look at some of the other results recently i mean you know look at the way they got pegged back uh you know by strasbourg i mean i know it was a, an absolute worldie from ahulu uh, you know, to, you know, to seal that comeback. But still, you know, I think that has contributed to, uh, you know, this this, this very um, sort of tense uh, atmosphere the last uh, couple of weeks where the fans, yes, you know, they're behind the team from kickoff, but they're quite quick as well to get on the players' backs when, uh, you know, there's a hint that the result might not go their way and obviously falling behind against Montpellier, not ideal. Uh, you know, they did manage to to fight back, but still, I think, uh, you know, Tudor, uh, you know, has a point when he says that it works both ways because, you know, when the the fans are in, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, full voice, uh, you know, there's it's very, very difficult for teams going to the velodrome to to sort of deal with that. But equally, you know, if something doesn't go their way, especially at this kind of pivotal moment of the season where they still probably feel like they might be able to reel PSG in if, uh, you know, PSG's results continue to dwindle as they have lately. Uh, you know, then, you know, there is that sense of, you know, these dropped points probably contributing towards a missed opportunity to win the title. I mean, I, I certainly have a certain degree of sympathy with with Tudor because uh, the atmosphere certainly even motivates me to work when I go to the velodrome, which is uh, which is saying something. Um, uh, you can't see listeners, but uh, JJ in particular, who's known me for quite a long time, is is laughing rather, rather cruelly, I, I feel, on a, early on a Monday morning. Um Luke, interestingly, Tudor, with a with an interview in in L'Equipe, the main sports newspaper here in France, last week before this game, sort of laid out his philosophy and and talked a lot about about various bits and pieces. But this this line stuck out for me: in my football, you have to run. Now that's a huge, again, a huge blow to me. And having played football with JJ, I know it's also a huge blow to him that we actually do have to. Go. It's it's no longer walking. I mean, I thought I thought just walking around and strutting his stuff and 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 doing the occasional moment of brilliance was was enough. But clearly not for Igor Tudor. It was uh, significantly more demanding. But obviously that was that was a pointed criticism of his uh, of his squad. It was even 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 more when he said basically we have to work for three hours a week. Which uh, doesn't seem like a lot of training to to me. But he was talking about the intent an intense. Three-hour period, one one hour over three days each each of three days to to get ready to do what needs to be done to be a top-class footballer. Now, if the coach is coming in, he's now what six eight eight months into the job. Uh, this again seems to me that there's a significant problem. In the Marseille squad, I don't want to mention the name of Dimitri Payet because I absolutely adore him as a player, but obviously he doesn't really fit in. And, and, and Tudor actually admitted that Payet does not fit into his style of play, literally because you do have to run uh, quite a lot to do so. But it seemed to me that under Jorge Sampaoli, under Marcelo Bielsa, they also had to run. 
and they they did so they did so for for, for Bielsa. They also did did so for San Paoli. What's the difference with with Tudor? And I mean, why he's coming out now with this in public? I assume he has said it to his players a lot in the last uh, eight months. Are we going to again look at a huge clear out? I mean, they had they brought in twelve players last summer. How many more are they going to bring in this summer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such a, a current problem. I mean, Lequeeper reported, I believe, yesterday that Nuno Tavares was kicked out of training by Tudor for not running enough. So it's clearly a message that he has put out to the public, uh, clearly trying to get a reaction from his players. But potentially, he got a re- reaction from some of those players, but one of those seemingly not, not Tavares, who who didn't partake in, in the full session. So I, I feel as though there's like cycles in football. I feel as though every manager who comes into a new club always puts a massive focus on the physical element. Oh, you know, we have to do the bleep test. Oh, they're not fit. They're not fit. I feel as though it's, it's just a recurring problem. I'm not sure if it's more of a PR exercise at this point to just kind of put a fire up their backsides a little bit to get them running, to get them doing the things that they weren't doing under, under the last manager. But it, it, it's a recurring problem. I, I'm not sure how big a problem it is in, in the grand scheme of things. I don't see Marseille's work rate or the lack thereof as the biggest reason for their lack of form. I think there are certainly other much more crucial factors behind that. I mean, when you look at Jonathan Close and, and Nuno Tavares actually on the pitch in the game, I'm not seeing an issue there. Um, I'm seeing quite a lot of desire still on the pitch, but maybe just not at times the technical uh, proficiency to do some of the things that they want to do or sometimes some of the organization some of the positioning some of the intelligence to do the things that he's asking them to do it, it's it's an interesting drop-off because at the start of the last se- of the season sorry and even in the mid-season we were looking at them as one of the more tactically proficient sides in the league um i think that was their strength i don't think the work rate is is a big issue but he's clearly wanting to get some kind of minor advantage over other other teams by increasing what what they produce on the pitch in terms of their physical statistics and just trying to yeah try, trying to get more out of them that way because elsewhere on the pitch elsewhere kind of behind the scenes it feels though things are kind of falling apart a little bit at this crucial stage of the season as they so often do for Marseille. I mean I think what I would say sort of specific to two of the examples that we've discussed in Payet and Tavares I think one of them Payet he's uh, you know, succumb to this kind of complacency, this, you know, he's he was very much in his comfort zone. You know, he would turn up and be brilliant in, in some games in, in years gone by. But equally, you know, sort of at the stage of his career that he's at now, sort of at his age, you know, sort of reinvesting himself, uh, you know, into a new manager and a new style of play, I think was always going to be, uh, you know, a massive sort of mentality battle. And it's one that ultimately, you know, Payet hasn't, you know, come out, uh, you know, and won. Uh, you know, he still doesn't fit with Tudor. Uh, and whatever changes OM make, as as uh, Ian already mentioned, they probably will be, will be many of them this summer. Uh, you know, he may well, uh, you know, end up being one of them. But I think with Tavares as well, when you see Tavares and Klaus, uh, you know, on the pitch, as as Luke was mentioning, you see two very attack-minded players. But I think one of the frustrations with Tavares is that Trudeau can't rely on him as a more defensive-minded player because he doesn't have that side to his game. And perhaps that's where this major sense of frustration comes from in that Trudeau's trying to get these ideas across, trying to change him into a somebody who's more responsible defensively without losing that ability to chip in uh, going forward. He reminds me a lot of Levin Kazawa, the Kazawa who burst onto the scene with Monaco, got picked up by PSG and always remained somebody who was a, a fantastic goal threat for the position that he was playing in. 
yet was a total liability defensively. And I think that's where a lot of that frustration stems from, uh, you know, with uh, with Tudor towards uh, some of his players, notably those two. That's a, that's a great comparison, actually. Yeah, I think like system, in terms of the system that Tudor deploys, I think that if you've got, he's a bit of, we've talked about a joker, but, you know, he is kind of a little bit of the joker in the package is Tavares. And, and you need to kind of potentially systematically find a way of allowing him to do what he does well very well and just kind of trying to hide his weaknesses i mean going out of league and for a, for a, for an example but Trent Alexander Arnold who is equally as you know frail defensively when liverpool were very much in their pomp they found a way of getting him to just be a great attacker but not be exposed defensively marseille i think ultimately haven't managed to do that this season i, I think that's yeah that, that's the biggest issue really uh, and when the attacking output drops off, as it has, um, that just kind of compounds the, the problem. I'd say, and I think that's why he's becoming a little bit of the maybe the scapegoat of, of the current situation at the club. A rare appearance, actually, for Dimitri Payet, uh, coming off the bench for a 255th appearance uh, with uh, with Marseille. That makes him the third most uh, capped, as it were, player for Marseille ever, behind uh, Steph Mondon there, 469, and. Uh, Roger Scotty, who I have to say, I don't remember, 308, Payet or 36. Tudor mentioning that uh, if he becomes a coach, I think he'll be a very good one. I mean, he's not going to say he's going to be a very bad one, but um, he says he talks to the players, he motivates them before. He said, you should see him in the dressing room motivating the players. Payet did say he would be a Marseille Avi, and he, he even showed me a picture where he has that on a shirt in his house. Um, so I can't see him moving from, from, from Marseille. Um, JJ, did you want to, do you want to make a comment about uh, Dimitri Payet's potential coaching potential? Well, he's had uh, plenty of time this season to pay attention to what Marseille and other teams are doing tactically. So I think it's a, a bit of a no brainer that he would move <laughs> into coaching at some point. Oh dear, dear. Harsh. Gosh, just uh, anybody, kids, just go and see the goal he scored against Pauksalonika last season and you will just love Dimitri Payet forever, as I do. Uh, one more point, and I think this was an interesting one from Tudor. He said, he was asked to compare uh, Italian football, of course, where he played for such a long time with Juventus, was coach of Hellas Verona last season, um, and French football. And he said, okay, PSG out on their own, better than Juve, better than Inter. Maybe the top top teams in Italy, like Inter, AC Milan, Juve, are, are better than maybe the second, third, fourth teams in, in France. However, he said, interestingly, that from sixth place to last place, Ligue 1 is way, way stronger than, than Serie A. He made an important point. He said, English teams, for example, buy players from Lorient, not from Italy. And that's because they think that they'll adapt better. I mean, he's obviously talking about people like, uh, like Dango Watera. For, for example, uh, Lauren Koscielny in, in the past even as well. Um, talked about the physicality of, of, of Ligue 1. Do you think that's a fair comment? That, uh, that French football generally is, 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 is pretty strong? I mean, it's, it's become very much the, the academy of, of Europe, hasn't it, in recent years? I, I, think, I think Ligue 1 has, has evolved to be this league that does really provide, and, and I think there's a very Anglo-centric approach to this, and I, I think that it's because France are so good at providing players for the Premier League specifically uh, because of that physicality. I think that 
Liga as a model has almost kind of tried to mould itself to what is required from a, a player. And I think you see that in, in the transfer market. And I think that's where that's kind of coming from. Um, but yeah, lots of great, great young players coming through. So many great academies. There's an interesting comment actually from from Riyad Mahrez uh, a few weeks ago. So he used to play in France before moving to Manchester City. And, and he said, you know, what I noticed and what struck me in France was just how many kids play football on the street. Now, I'm not sure if that's because since he's moved to England, he probably lives in Cheshire. Um, he's probably not seeing that too much. But, you know, there is something in there. You know, France isn't necessarily perceived by the rest of the footballing world as a really massive footballing country of okay, okay there's the, the huge national team but i think there's you know there's always been this stigma potentially around the actual domestic division itself um which maybe needs to kind of um die with you know die at this moment in time because there are so many players coming through there's so much further around the country for league and you see it in San you see it we're talking about marseille it is very much a footballing country both the national team and in the domestic division. And there's so many great players coming through and they're just so suited to that English style of play, which is, is why it's getting that reputation that it's now rightly getting. I mean, I think as well, uh, you know, when we're sort of talking about the Italian league and the French league, both leagues are very rigorous tactically. Obviously, the Italian league has always had that kind of stigma attached to it, that it's very defensively focused. It's sort of shedding that now, uh, sort of in recent years with, uh, you know, a massive sort of cultural change to the detriment of the Italian national team, which really now struggles to produce players in certain positions. But I mean, Ligue 1 has always, you know, certainly sort of since the since the days that I started to follow, you know, back in the early 2000s, it's always kind of had this reputation as kind of like the ideal finishing school for uh, you know, uh, those clubs, I guess, that you would consider sort of to be the elite European clubs when they come in to buy talents, uh, you know, from Ligue 1's best teams, uh, you know, that they're very well prepared, not just physically, but also, uh, you know, tactically so that they don't miss a beat. I mean, you know, think back to when, you know, teams like Newcastle came and plundered Ligue 1 for talent and, you know, some of the players when they would seamlessly adapt, uh, you know, to to the Premier League, you know, the likes of Kabai, the likes of Sissoko, uh, you know, those, uh, you know, are very good examples, I think, of when you sort of reach the the, the ceiling of your development uh, in France and then make the jump to uh, to the Premier League. And perhaps I think some clubs in France have allowed those moves to happen too early in certain players' careers. But equally, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of logic in, in what Tudor said, uh, you know, certainly in terms of, you know, with the way that the... Um, you know, the French league is perhaps more competitive sort of outside of the European positions generally across the board in terms of uh, in terms of the quality, because there does seem, you know, obviously I don't watch Serie A sort of week in, week out in the way that I do Ligue 1, but, you know, because of my work commitments, I do have to keep an eye on what's going on there. And there is a big drop off between the the clubs that are qualifying for Europe and competing in Europe in Italy and the rest of the league, whereas in Ligue 1, you still get those teams, even the ones battling against relegation, capable of pulling off those shocks, as Tudor discovered recently at home to Strasbourg. Yeah, and, and maybe the competitiveness of the division itself is sometimes maybe to the detriment of the European runs, because it is unlike, you know, the, the Italian division is, is okay. That's, that's a very much a, a league influx in transition. It's becoming something other than what it once was, and, and maybe the same for the Spanish division, but it, it feels as though in those divisions, if you are the best team, you do just win. And if you're, yeah, you're you're the top four, top five, it's it feels very, very settled. It's not the case in France. And, you know, every game 
is very very difficult i mean you, you can you just need to look at this game week and, and marseille not picking up the points at home to montpellier who for large parts of the season have been right at the bottom of the division strasbourg making a fist of it against against monaco every game is is difficult and there's just competitiveness right through the division i think that's partially through the reasons we cited but yeah just really i think due to the, the fact that there's so many young players with the desire to kind of show themselves and get a big move to the Premier League, as so often happens. I think it really breeds competitiveness in, in the division as a whole, but maybe sometimes to the detriment of, of the European competitions where they've obviously they've not thrived uh, at all, really, this season, apart from these who are still in the Europa Conference. But, you know, it's, it's not the biggest European competition, is it? I think that's, that that leads us on nicely to to a game that I, I saw a little bit of, Brest against Toulouse. What a performance this was from Brest. Incredibly strong. Frank Honorat. There's a name that should be one on the uh, on the the uh, wanted list of a number of clubs next summer because he had a fantastic game and it's not the first time as well. His set piece delivery sensational, um, along with the 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 man with the most Dutch name ever. Unfortunately, he's a Dutchman, Branko van den Bomen, uh, who provided yet another assist with a sensational cross to lose. Actually, going in front, but Brest winning that one three one to move out of the of the relegation zone. Angers uh, getting a point against Nice. Uh, Didier Digard's side unbeaten in uh, 14 matches in all competitions. They've got that quarterfinal coming up in the Conference League against Basel, but uh, another draw for Nice, and they are just uh, slightly stalling, it has to be said, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with them in the summer. Auxerre, massive, and I have to say pretty streaky win for them in a relegation six-pointer against Trois. Trois should have been ahead. Patrick Kisnobo's side, though, losing by a goal to nil. And Bayern Young coming off the bench to get the uh, only goal of the game with Giroud watching on. So he, he must have been delighted. But uh, Auxerre still in trouble. They had gotten out of the bottom four, but Brest's win on a Sunday. Auxerre's game happened on Saturday. Brest's win on Sunday, taking them out of the bottom four and putting Auxerre right back in it. And Ajaxio, <laughs> they're still very much uh, in trouble They've lost 11 games in 2023. That's even more than PSG. So that tells you just how badly they're playing. Um, that's, in fact, more than any other team in the top five European leagues over the period. They were beaten by uh, two late penalties uh, at Clermont, despite going in front. It now takes us to the last game. It happened Saturday evening. Uh, arguably, apart from the psg uh, Leon game, the biggest match of the weekend at Roson Park. I'm not going to mention it because I've already done it. Ren against Lance. Callum Brown saw this one. Went to Fofana. He finds Florian Sotokat. Openza's in the area. What a goal from Lance. And it's Lois Openza at it again. Goal number 15 of the season for the Belgian. And he continues where he left off. Pre-international break on the half-hour mark. Ren nil. Lance one. Monzanza with no chance. Lovely ball from Medina into Fofana. Sotoka out on the right. What a header that is from Lois Openza. Monzanza rooted to the spot. Sotoka, the provider again. Lovely cross and an equally lovely header. Even two before the international break. Scores again, but it's Burijo. Well, Ren so close to an immediate response. 
And Facundo Medina celebrates that like a goal because he has just saved one. What a block it is from the Argentinian. Well, here was the chance, almost straight from kickoff. Callum Wendell's cut back for Burijo, and that is sensational from Facundo Medina. Luis Appenda, six goals and an assist for the Belgian. He's been involved in seven of their last eight goals. Lance into second place, as we mentioned, above Marseille on goal difference. It, it wasn't a classic, let's be fair. It wasn't a classic, gentlemen. But uh, that is that is another great performance from Lance. And we're now staring down the barrel of the prospect, if you can do that, of uh, Lance. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Luke's nodding. With a slightly I'm just, approvingly, I'm just imagining. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining what what looking down the barrel of a prospect looks like. I can't quite visualise it, but I like it. Okay, of Lars being in next season's Champions League group stage. Now, personally, I, I I'm very neutral in this, but I am hugely excited at that prospect because my my oh my, the Stad Felix Bollard on a Champions League night. Oh. What is that going to do to French? What is that going to do to us, gentlemen? I want to be there, regardless of whether I'm working or not. I mean, that is going to be sensational. But that aside, Franck Ayres and Lance again proving that uh, they are they are the group that the, the team is just above all. I mean, it was another great team performance. Yeah, absolutely, and I think as well. Uh, you know, when uh, Luke was talking earlier about Ligue 1 needing to to sort of, you know, sort of kill off this, uh, you know, sort of disrespectful I idea or image that a lot of people have of the league, having a club like Le Lens, uh, you know, playing in the Champions League, bringing that sort of noise, bringing that sort of colour, you know, that is really, really important to me. And look at, uh, you know, how great that atmosphere was at the beginning of the Nantes-Juve game, obviously before Angel Di Maria goes and does, uh, you know, what we saw him do for many a year with PSG. But, uh, you know, having those kind of really important clubs, uh, you know, back on the European scene, it would, it would be huge for the French game. I do feel really sorry for Rennes in the way that, uh, you know, Terrier's injury really sort of derailed them uh, in many ways, because it does feel like they would probably be up there you know, vying for the same, uh, you know, qualification spot as Lance had they not missed out on his goals over the last couple of months. But equally, uh, you know, you cannot take anything away from what uh, Lance and uh, Franquez have managed to, to create. Uh, you know, they're already on the verge of, uh, you know, making history by potentially reaching the Champions League. But as Ian mentioned already, they've still got to go to, to PSG. They've got a very good record against PSG. They're only six points off. You know, if they can suddenly close that gap uh, you know, just a little bit more. They could dream, uh, you know, of something absolutely incredible and potentially either closing the gap on PSG between now and the end of the season or even maybe overtaking them, depending on what else happens, uh, you know, with PSG, certainly with a, with a view to that trip to, to Nice next weekend. So, you know, Lance at this moment in time, they really have discovered, uh, you know, a second wind, uh, you know, after sort of undergoing a bit of a, a dip in form, uh, uh, you know, sort of in the early part of uh, 2023. And they're coming back into form just at the right time. You know, having Opender on, you know, the kind of tear that he's on at the moment, scoring headed goals, incredible. I didn't know that he'd be capable of that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it's a very well-assembled squad. Everybody is sort of of the same kind of standing within the within the group, probably with the exception of maybe Seko Fofana, who are individually has been performing at incredible levels since Lance returned to, to Ligue 1. 
uh, you know, and it really now feels like they're on the verge of something perhaps even more special than what they've already achieved. Yeah, I mean, it, I think another great thing about Lance getting into the Champions League as well would be the fact that you can just keep this team together because I think lots of people assumed it'd be a foregone conclusion that players like Seko Fofana, who's been linked with a move away for so long, Lois Appender, Bryce Samba, who's obviously now, uh, he's not quite a French international, but was in, in the last squad, uh, Kevin Danso, all these players that people were you know, getting really excited about and we're assuming would be picked apart. I hope that won't happen if they get Champions League football because I, I think you can convince those players to stay. On on the flip side, I think you look at Ren, who have been, I, I think, yeah, you know, you can't underestimate the Martin Terrier uh, injury and, and what that did to their season. But that really is a, a hugely talented squad with a lot of depth. And you think that we've already spoken about Lille, but they look so strong. And if Ren miss out, you could see there being a few issues for Ren, who I, I think that squad gets absolutely picked apart because there's just so many great individual players in there who maybe haven't, as a collective, achieved what they should have achieved this season. But as you say, Terry is a, a massive caveat to, to any kind of conclusions we can draw from their season. I have to say that I, th- I think this, there's a great story about Lance not, as a club, but also uh, one individual player who I'd, who I'd really like to pick out is, is Florian Sotoka who uh, I believe, if, if memory serves me correctly, started the season with a, with a hat-trick. Um, he provided his eighth assist at the, uh, at, on, on, on Saturday. Only Messi and Neymar are doing better this season. I mean, that's fantastic. And you're talking about a guy who's 32 now, came to uh, the top level of football very late on in his, his mid to late 20s, pretty much like Jonathan Close, actually. Uh, I think no, no coincidence that they, they have both come through at, at, at Lens. And uh, to see him in the Champions League next season would would be slightly bizarre, but also also fully deserved because um, he he's been a, an outstanding performer in what is an outstanding an outstanding lost team. I think it, it's difficult to pick out an individual because it is such a, a such a collective effort. So lost up to second place, six points behind uh, Paris Saint Germain. Ren now out of the uh, out of the top five. And uh, clinging on a little bit. I have to say, Lens have got their destiny in their own hands. They're away to PSG, home to Monaco, home to Marseille. Uh, they have got some tricky games, home to Reims, away to Lorient as well. Uh, finishing with Ajaxio and Auxerre. There's a game against Toulouse as well mixed in there. But uh, Franck's side have got a real chance of, of finishing in the top two. Time now for our Deja Who quiz. Remember, you've got to get all four clues over the month uh, correct or however many podcasts we have in the month, depending on international breaks and uh, our own personal whims most of the time, um, to to have a chance of winning a league and Uber Eats team shirt. This is this week's clue. Born in the Paris suburbs, I made my Ligue 1 debut east of the capital at just 18 years of age. With my two French clubs, I made over 150 top-flight appearances. I also played for three English clubs, two Italian clubs, and finished my career at 36 years of age in Belgium. Over the course of my career, I won the Coupe de la Ligue and three Serie A championships. On the international stage, I was something of a late bloomer, and despite not being considered a member of the first golden generation, I did earn over 20 caps and managed to add two trophies to my cabinet. Who am I, and against whom did I score my only international goal? Do you think you know who it is? your answers to us via email to league one podcast at gmail.com 
Luke's looking suitably puzzled. I think that may well have been before your time, Luke. I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one. I'm perplexed. Yeah. <laughs> Very perplexed. <laughs> J- JJ? Yeah, I've got... Bosco Balaban? <laughs> I've got a, uh, I've, I've got a couple of uh, potential leads uh, in my head. So I'm gonna, uh, obviously, when we stop recording, I'm going to go away and uh, reassure myself that I was right exactly the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Bosco Balaban, just to, as a clue. But JJ is a big Aston Villa fan, and I'm sure he remembers um, the, the slightly less good player who wasn't uh, Savan Milosevic. Anyway, all that remains is to look ahead to next week. We are getting into what what uh, Sir Alex Ferguson would call squeaky bum time in the Ligue 1 Uber Eats. It's time to take a little bon voyage. Gentlemen, some fixtures. Here we go. Friday night. Oh, Lons Strasbourg. Goals, atmosphere, three points for Lance Shirley, old banker. Lille away at Angers, Nice welcoming Paris Saint-Germain to the Alliance uh, Riviera. Lyon, after coming off the back of that win at PSG and uh, they'll be hoping a Coupe de France semi-final win on Wednesday at Nantes against Rennes. Big game, big game for Rennes. Huge game as well in Corsica. Ajaxio against Auxerre. That's a big, really big game at the bottom. Um, and also Marseille looking to... Uh, well, they're on the road, so they should be all right, surely, against Lorient, while there's a Nantes against Monaco, which uh, seems to me was a replay of the Coupe de France semi-final of uh, last season, which Nantes came through in what was a, a tremendous atmosphere at the Bourgeois. Gentlemen, what do we fancy? I'm gonna take the the Line Trois tram to the to the Alliance Riviera, Riviera. Keep it nice and local. Um, yeah, I mean that that's such a big match. I mean, I think for Nice, um, they're gonna want to pick up a little bit more momentum because I think if their league form stalls, I think that their European aspirations could also uh, stall as well. So huge game for them, but even bigger for PSG because I think that if you cut PSG's lead to three points, um, I think that. Marseille and Lens, who I both expect to win this weekend, might start smelling blood a little bit, and it could get quite interesting. Which, as a neutral, I really hope for. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, that Luke went for the Nice game because I, I would love to be at that Lens match. Uh, as, as somebody who's got a bit of a soft spot for both Lens and Strasbourg, I think you know seeing them both go at it, especially the way that Strasbourg has sort of approached. What's been quite a tricky period, uh, you know, we know that uh, the president, Mark Keller, has been talking sort of publicly about how the club, uh, you know, may well be changing hands in the, in the next few months. The fact that they're battling relegation, uh, you know, having worked their way all the way back from the brink, coming up against the Lens side as well, who have, you know, massively turned things around since, let's not forget, a few years ago being bottom of Ligue 2, potentially looking at even dropping out of, the, you know, the, the fully professional uh, French uh, footballing landscape and then now sort of being within touching distance of not just qualifying for the Champions League but potentially challenging for the Ligue 1 title uh, you know once again as well sort of back to the early 2000s uh, you know when it was heady days for for Lens so for me that's definitely uh, you know the place that I would like to be for for this weekend's games and you know I think it's a fantastic way to kick off this uh, Easter weekend's action. I'm just going to go on a sli- slightly left field, but uh, but not too far. 
Stade de Reims against Stade Brestois 29. I think that'll be a fantastic game in, in Reims, which is a beautiful city, by the way. The, uh, the French kings were, were previously crowned there. Uh, fabulous cathedral and the football. I think between between those two sides, very, very, not really talked about so much, particularly Brest. I think that they play really, really good football um, under Eric Waugh, former Sunderland midfielder. I'll, I'll, I'll give him that one as well as Marseille and various other clubs. But he did have a fantastic season at, at Sunderland when uh, Sunderland were actually very, very good. Um, and Reims, of course, are playing really good football, really good football under Will Still. That has the potential to be a high-scoring affair. It, it, it really does. Um, so Reims Brest would be the pick of uh, the uh, slightly left field round 30 action for me, but uh, some huge games coming up in Ligue 1 Uber Eats next weekend. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to JJ and Luke for joining me. Le Bourgeois will be back next week with a mystery host. Wow, so much a mystery. I don't even know who that is. Talk about everything French football. There'll also be, of course, another Deja Who clue with our April Mystery Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey up for grabs. All that and more on the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English, Le Bourgeois. See you then.